everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. My guest today is Glenn Kahl. Glenn is a noted author and an avid reader. As Deputy National Intelligence Officer, he led 17 agencies of the intelligence community in preparing the U.S. government's post-senior assessments of transnational threats to the nation for the president, members of cabinet, and the nation's most senior military leaders. He was detailed to the executive office of the president and has extensive negotiating and policy experience. Glenn also led sensitive programs in the Directorate of Operations at the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, as we know them, in four continents. He did a BA in government at Harvard, an MA in European mm-hmm. Studies and International Economics at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and a further master's in Paris. Glenn is also an intercollegiate ice hockey player. We're going to figure out who his favorite player is later on in the podcast. But today we're going to be talking about Glenn's book, The Interrogator and Education. Glenn, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Glenn, we have to start here. So who's your favorite hockey player? (laughs) Well, you know, growing up, um, I grew up only I don't know, as the crow flies four kilometers from the Boston Garden. So the Boston Bruins, of course, were my uh, professional team. And, and uh, Bobby Orr was the big star. This goes back a long time, 50 years and more. Um, and he's one of the half dozen greatest hockey players of all time and, and a gentleman on top of it. Uh, so probably Bobby Orr from when I was a boy. But my father was a, a semi-professional hockey player, and he's the one who who got me into hockey, of course, as a little kid, as a three-year-old, he would take um, me out uh, to the ponds around Boston uh, on weekends where he would play. In those days, thousands of people played on ponds. Uh, that doesn't happen now. We've become a little decadent and afraid that people will drown. Um, and on occasion, that did happen. But uh, he started me doing that. And so since he had played for Boston University, uh, before I was born, uh, that was the team, and then the the local heroes from that university team were my heroes growing up. Awesome. So my first introduction to ice hockey was when I started studying in Canada. I did not know that game existed. I knew field hockey because in India we play field hockey, and then right. I I actually developed a liking for the game. Uh, don't ask me why. I just like violent games, and I used to love the idea of people punching each other, <laughs> and it right. was allowed. Right. Uh, it, it, so uh, some a lot of people are going to judge me, but they'll understand because I'm I'm an even bigger mixed martial arts fan. So that was oh, I, I love watching mixed martial arts and Ultimate Fight Club and so on. I'm I'm completely a barbarian, and enjoy the violence <laughs> as much as you, or at least as much as you. And uh, my again, a story of my father. From my father played hockey, competitive hockey through age seventy five, which I wow. I'm not doing. My brother still is. Um, my brother's seventy. Um, but he always said that, uh, or I, I clearly saw that for my father, a good season uh, was defined by having um, scored a goal and had a, at least one good fight. <laughs> oh, well, I, I like your father. <laughs> so, so, Glenn, let's talk about the book now. So maybe this can be my first question to you. Look, I, I had read this book a while ago and... So we're recording it a little while after I read it. So I reread it. I, I quickly went through it. Now, as, as one goes through your book, uh, and I don't say this, I mean, I try to say this in a positive way. It's hard to read it. it it's painful at times when you read this book. But so, and you know, the book starts with, a, <laughs> as they say, a, a very big disclaimer from uh, your publishers, I guess, because they say uh, this material has been reviewed by the CIA to prevent mm. the disclosure of classified information. The book literally starts with this. So how did you decide to write this book? Yeah, the, every uh, CIA, CIA officer um, by law is obliged to submit for uh, review anything that he or she writes uh, concerning uh, intelligence or uh, foreign policy. Uh, and then, again, by law, the obligation of the, it's called the Publications Review Board, I, I won't get too much into the weeds, uh, is uh, their only uh, legal authorization is to uh, protect sources and methods 
of uh, collecting information. And that's legitimate. I mean, it, you should not know, nobody should know uh, that the United States has a, a spy in the Russian prime minister's office uh, or who it is, or uh, uh, should know, well, here's how we tap the telephone, something like that. Because once that is known, the person is either dead, the source is lost, and the technique can never be used again. So that's legitimate. Uh, they legally uh, may not have anything to say about my opinions or anyone's opinions. Um, so the, the uh, censorship uh, doesn't change me saying that I thought President Bush was a genius or an idiot uh, or I was upset about this or happy about that. But they, they can say, uh, you may not tell us uh, a source or method. So that's that's what uh, every book by CIA officer has to has to have. How I came to write the book was uh, well, you know, I was a career in your description. You mentioned the various public roles I could uh, I played during my career, but I was um, actually a, what we call an operations officer. What all of us go to movies to watch. Um, uh, hap, you know, movies about uh, the James Bond stuff, uh, where uh, I and my colleagues, uh, our job as the director of the CIA said, is to steal uh, secrets and recruit spies. And we do that overseas. And that's stuff that we can't talk about without careful review. Um, and that's what I did. And that's how I ended up being involved in the enhanced interrogation program. That's not an analytical job. That's an operational one. And I found uh, myself, as we'll talk about in this operation and crazy series, uh, alarming series of circumstances, and uh, which I, I felt deeply betrayed and undermined uh, my country's uh, laws uh, and principles and, uh, and institutions, and ultimately our society, which we'll, I think we'll talk about. And I thought, well, what does what do I do? And um, as I frame it in the book, all of us in life come to some points where we have to decide um, when will I say no, I, I won't do this, or or what must I do uh, to maintain uh, honor um, and to do something right, and, and not not only but also perhaps to save ourselves in all senses of the, of the phrase. And that's where the circumstance I found myself in. And I was so profoundly alarmed uh, that my country, <clears throat> through my institution's actions, uh, had gone so wildly astray that um, the, the fabric of, of my nation, what I had sworn an oath to and devoted my life to serving, uh, would be undermined. And so I thought, well, I have to, it's, it's simply clear. I, I have to try to um, make others aware of what has happened, because how do you, uh, I think I put it in the book, how do, how do you, um, I'll, I'll sound biblical here, how do you dispel the darkness? Well, you, you cast light upon it. That means you, you bring it into the open. So that's, that's why I wrote the book. So maybe let's start here. In your book, in the beginning, you say, I love the gray world, right? G-R-A-Y, gray. It is multifaceted and complex, obscure and hard. It transcends the lie of moral purity, of good and evil, of a simple world. This is our daily challenge, if we are honest. To accept doubt, to realize there is no certainty, and yet to act with principle, finding meaning and purpose in confusion. Inhabiting the gray world with clear eyes has often fulfilled me. Now, Glenn, I, when I started reading your book, I was like, is this person <laughs> in the CIA? <laughs> I mean, uh, so the image one, one gets of intelligence operatives or people who work for intelligence agencies, and this is, this is not specific to America. You know, people have a different image of that. But so... If you are the way you are, I, and and I again, I, I'm I'm genuinely curious. How did you end up in CIA then? Like for a person uh, to go in the CIA and to have thoughts like these, it's kind of confusing for me. 
Well, gosh, the, the story of um, how I got in the agency is a whole other podcast. Actually, it literally is supposed to be an, uh, another book. The fact that we're talking about my book and that it's so long ago that I wrote it is one of my great failures and points of shame, um, personal shame, because uh, to the point where my wife is now just exasperated beyond discussion with me and completely correctly, uh, you know, because I was supposed to have uh, written and, uh, and should write several uh, additional books, specific books that I have in mind and have scoped out and so on. But another story, one of which could be how I got into the agency. So that first, um, very briefly, because it truly is, it's a fantastic story, but uh, briefly, you know, I grew up uh, in, uh, essentially in Boston, Massachusetts. And my family, I was the fourth generation of my family to grow up in the same house. And in the United States, that's quite unusual. America's a very, you know, we're all, it's an immigrant nation. It's a new nation. We are very mobile geographically. Um, but my family is an old, in fact, I have ancestors, many ancestors who arrived literally on the Mayflower, the first ship of English to arrive uh, here in 1620. So I was this, this New England Yankee. And then I found myself going to school all of exactly five kilometers from my house. You know, I went to Harvard and I loved Harvard and Harvard's a magnificent university and all that. Um, and I love Boston, but that's my home. And I had always aspired, even as a, as a kid, to uh, see something else, uh, to go beyond what I knew. And here I was just on the other side of Boston's Charles River, um, so I thought, well, how do I, how do I get out of that? And, and I took a year off from university. I didn't drop out. I took a year off, what's now called a gap year, but it wasn't in those days that didn't exist. And I went to uh, France and, um, I, I worked on a farm as a farm hand and, uh, I traveled and I went to school and so on. And, and I fell in love with the, the stimulation and the difference of things foreign. And I wanted to uh, continue to have that kind of stimulation to be the only American in some setting. I've always liked to be the only American somewhere. Um, and that combined with part of my upbringing, which was in my family, we talked a little bit about hockey, but, but um, commitment to community and engagement in public affairs. Uh, is one of the defining characteristics of a good person and a life well lived in my family. Very, very important. This was discussed uh, and not simply discussed, but known by how my parents lived uh, at the dinner table and in our lives. So how does one combine this love that I found and made in things foreign with a a desire and impulsion to be involved in public service. And the combination of that is the foreign service, our diploma, diplomatic corps. So I started to pursue that. It's the only thing I really ever wanted to do other than to be a professional hockey player, say. There are many twists and turns, and it's a very extremely competitive process and a very slow and laborious one to get in or to be accepted, uh, far fewer than 1% of applicants are, are accepted. So I'm pursuing this slowly. And at a moment of frustration, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I have to do something here. I can't wait forever. And I wanted, uh, I'm not particularly interested in business. Um, I don't want to go back to school. I don't want to do nothing. So I thought, well, what will challenge me to my limits of my abilities and skill and, and potential? Uh, intellectually uh, and morally, because if it's, I've always felt and this is a quirk of my family, if something is uh, the harder something is, the better it is. That's not necessarily true, but that's how my family thinks. And then even physically, because I was a I was very athletic, and I thought I know being a spy must be wild. Why don't I try that? And so um, I pursued that, and that's not an easy thing to to pursue. It's easier now with the internet, um, but it wasn't then. And so the last part of the tale is, I st this was several years after I finished university, but I still knew the head of Harvard's career services uh, office. 
And so I went to see her. I, I admired her greatly. And I said, blah, blah, um, how would I contact the CIA? And uh, she did this. She went, by calling that number. <laughs> I knew that they would know. I knew it. And so that's how it, how it started. And then there were many, many twists and turns. But th that's the motivation. Now, there are two sets in your book that that fascinate me. The first one I want to focus on is like the structure itself. I'll tell you why. And maybe you can hear me out. So, so you've written here, standard DO advice on how to get promoted has always been, quote, go where the bombs go off. When promotion panels sift through our files and compare an officer who did a solid job in Beirut, say, with an officer who did a solid job in a city in Europe, the inclination is invariably to reward the officer who has filled the more dangerous or arduous assignment. Now, every organization or every structure has its essence. Now, when I read this, in some absurd way, I don't know why I find it deeply disturbing that is this all that the essence is of intelligence agencies? It's a very good question. Um, and happily, the answer is that it is not all that it is. But it, but it is I, I was accurate in my my description of, of how promotions frequently work. Um, there is a, a bias, which I think is understandable that. Okay, all things being equal, someone who does the more perilous uh, job uh, probably deserves some sort of uh, reward, uh, or it's harder to do a perilous job or to do a job in a perilous uh, circumstance. But, so that's that. That certainly that dynamic certainly is uh, is real. Is that all there is? Uh, no. It's a very complex question to answer. Um, the mission of the agency of the CIA is to collect and then interpret uh, intelligence. All of us um, are misled by the uh, reputation and the movies that we watch um, and the stuff that we'll be talking about that I was involved in, in the, uh, pardon me, in the interrogation uh, operation. Uh, we think that it's uh, rappelling down uh, building sides and, and, uh, doing really sexy things uh, at cocktail parties or or uh, breaking into safes or stuff like that and and those things do occur uh, they are part of the job but the essence of the job is a bit more prosaic uh, and it is to collect intelligence and then analyze it and uh, very important to note uh, that the what we call in the in the profession of intelligence covert at least Americans call it covert action uh, a an o operation um, taken by an officer to change uh, the course of events let's say Pakistan is planning to invade you know uh, Kashmir and and we know this and we think well this is a terrible idea and uh, so let's we have to stop that. So we go out and we you know we put sugar into the gas tanks or something so that the vehicles won't run and there can be no invasion. You know I, I'm making silly examples up, but or let's say we think it's a great idea and so we put you know sugar into the gas tanks of the Indian army. Who knows? Um, that those operations do happen. They but they receive 98 percent of the attention and literally constitute two or five percent of the budget and the and the attention and, and energy of the intelligence community. So that's not all there is, and it is a skewed perception. And unfortunately, frequently the covert action tail does wag the dog of an, the intelligence agency, which is alarming and is not supposed to happen, but does a lot because the impact of an operation like that is a matter of war and peace, life and death often. The heart of the agency's mission, however, is to read the Hindustan Times, uh, and then um, Pravda, uh, and then talk to someone in a cocktail party in Delhi, uh, and say, well, here are the three comments made by three different observers, uh, all of whom have their own axes to grind in advancing their own interests. And how do we 
put that into some framework to filter out bias if we can and discern the facts. Uh, and that that's really the essence of the job. It, it, it truly is where the most of the energies and resources are uh, go. So at a core level, the mission of any intelligence agency has to be between their nation's interest within certain parameters. And now we are getting into the meat of your book because this is where the gray world starts, right? Uh, I'm never going to maybe grind an axe against an American uh, for looking after American interests, nor will I grind an axe against an Indian looking after Indian interests. The problems start when we discuss, let's say, the means to an end problem. As as what what means do we use to the like? For example, in in your book, uh, you mentioned this executive order one two three 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 referred to in the agency as EO one two three three three, which is the main regulatory and legal reference point for what the agency could and could not do, what was legal and what was not. It was passed in the wake of the Church and Pike Committee revelations in the late 1970s of the CIA assassination attempts and of CIA operations concerning American citizens, including spying on them. It outlawed assassination, any espionage conducted against American persons, established congressional oversight of the intelligence community, and set up the requirement to obtain a FISA, FISA, I think that's how you guys call it, warrant oh, FISA, before, yeah. Yeah, for, before conducting a range of surveillance or surreptitious activities against U.S. persons. Now, so let's let's dwell a little further because this is the meat of the book, basically, there are people who join these operations with, let's say, noble intentions, uh, uh, assuming, uh, I mean, if somebody is a patriot or not. I mean, well, there are many people who are not patriots who believe these are just fictions and these are temporary fictions that we're, but we're not getting into a philosophical discourse over here about that. But the baseline assumption is people are patriots. They believe in the idea of a nation state and intelligence agencies uh, conduct operations. And as I read, which you have shared in your book, a direct uh, excerpt. Now, now let us focus into those enhanced interrogation techniques. And uh, I mean, I remember clearly in a very latter half of the book, there are two pages of techniques that you've mentioned. I can never forget them. Now, mm -hmm. what you mention over here, what you mention over there, are completely contrasting realities that the which it it uh, I don't know how what word I was jarred when I read them, and you know what the irony is I was expecting that is coming even after expecting that is coming I was jarred when I read them but the point is first first comes for first come first I want to talk about this how does one draw that line at, at, like there are instances in your book basically you have your I don't know, your seniors telling you, you have to ignore this, you ignore that, you don't do this, you don't do that. So so how does one motivate oneself then to work for the nation? Like, Or is working for the nation, the motivation is that you ignore it at all costs, ignore everything that goes on at all costs? Yeah, these are, are great questions, as in really good and as in very consequential, both meanings of the, of the term, phrase. Um, and, it, and the answer to them, or my attempt to answer them and to understand them, is um, explicitly why I, I start the book framing, um, trying to describe the gray world. Um, it's incredibly stimulating and very wearing. Uh, and I think elsewhere, uh, or in that, in those passages, I say what. Well, we are obliged in our our jobs to draw clear lines, but we cannot see. And so we can't know where the line is or where the line should be necessarily. Um, and yet we must draw it somehow. And so we'll, we'll be doomed to fail uh, because how can you do that when you can't see and can't know uh, what the answer is uh, in advance? <clears throat> That's part of the stimulation and part of the reason why uh, officers why it's a uh, truly a wearing profession. Uh, it does take its toll. 
the man who helped me get into the agency, a, a generation older than I am, he was my parents' generation, World War II generation. He wrote uh, a memoir. Uh, this is decades before me. And I, I read it when I was trying to decide what to do with myself. And it helped uh, entice me into the agency, toward the agency. He describes the dilemma. And I knew him a little bit, uh, this man. Um, the dilemma also, uh, his first recruitment of a spy was a fellow in uh, South America. And the es essence of uh, the officer's job was to befriend him, as of all case officers, uh, to win his trust uh, and then to manipulate it, which is antithetical to what it is to, to uh, be a good person, to have, uh, to win the trust of someone. And he was always troubled by that. Um, and, but that's the essence of the job. And then he said, uh, any officer who uh, ignores that or is unaware of that uh, is lacking a part of his, uh, being a complete uh, individual and a, and a complete officer. Um, and uh, yet there are many who, who do have these blinders or, because they are incapable or simpler, more simple-minded, frankly, I'll talk about them. But that there is no, he said, no um, easy resolution to this contradiction. And that is part of the essence of the job. Many of, uh, the agency does a good job in filtering out people who can't deal with this contradiction and don't want to and find it wrong. All of which is completely honorable and legitimate. Um, one can think that this is just sick and, and one shouldn't, should not do this and I will not. And then a number of my, a good number of my colleagues uh, from the beginning of my career uh, resigned because they, uh, they felt that this was just not something they, they wanted to have to reconcile, even try to reconcile or, or bear. Um, I and colleagues and those of us who remain on the whole uh, do come to terms with it. But there's no answer to, uh, there's no resolution to this contradiction. So what does one do? And I think ultimately the difference between what made, made it possible for me and for many of my colleagues to um, feel that we are doing something honorable, uh, or at least it doesn't tear us up, uh, is you don't just choose a side. It's not just that I serve the American flag or I serve the Indian flag. Um, you have to accept and, and believe that the objectives and ideals of the state you serve are not simply that of realpolitik and power. Not simply. That the realpolitik of which you are an agent um, does uh, seek to advance um, some sort of uh, higher actual ideal. Now, one could say that's naive. Uh, you know, you're you're a Christian uh, luminary and you're a fool. Maybe all of that's true. <laughs> I'm hardly a Christian, uh, um, but I don't think that it is actually. There, there is, there really is a qualitative difference in. Um, what the United States has sought to do for all of the ruthless steps that it takes. It's not an innocent nation, um, but compare that with, with what Russia uh, has and the Soviet Union has always embodied, which is purely serving the interests of power. And it's not even the state, because what is the state? The state is a man right now and always has been. So I think that's how I, um, on the whole, came to terms with um, the, frankly, terrible things that are a big part of the nature of the profession. Uh, but it is also true that uh, numbers of my colleagues are, are not, um, they, they don't inhabit the same intellectual world that I do, trying to weigh these uh, see clear lines in gray zones. You know, for them, it's uh, my country, right or wrong, and uh, yes, sir, and let's do it, which is uh, alarming. But there are people like that, certainly. 
Yeah, and this comes uh, to the point of desensitization. At till what extent does the desensitization, which is, by the way, done by every agency, whether it's intelligence agencies or the armed forces, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's the Navy, because, I mean, let's, let's just look at it objectively. When you are part of an army, there will be times when you're going to fight a war, you're going to kill another human being. The, the probabilities of you killing actually someone just like you are high and it's easy for people to say who are not part of the armed forces or who are not part of these agencies the psychological impact of something like this is quite huge but you know i was just thinking about it when when i read your book i was trying to put myself and and and, and i know it's never going to be the same because you have lived this life and i have never but i was trying to look at it from an indian patriots perspective let's say mm. you know and i'm not using you as an example but i'll use maybe Edward Snowden as an analogy. I actually genuinely thought about it. I was like, what if Edward was an Indian? And what was done by Edward was that he basically gave away Indian secrets. How would I react then? And, you know, my test has always been that my principles should always run the test of what if it happened to me, my country, my tribe, my people, me personally. And honestly, I... That's the moment when I could sympathize with you because I did not have an answer and and I still don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment I started. I, I came I, in a very weird way. I came at peace by reading your book. Uh, mm-hmm. When I put myself uh, in the I, I always use the Edward Snowden example, because that to me is like a very extreme case where America has such polarized views on Edward Snowden. On one side, Edward Snowden is the, you know, as in he he is the evil incarnate he is the betrayer he is the traitor and on the other side which is very interesting inside america and kudos to america they actually let these people speak up too they think edward snowden did the greatest service ever i mean snowden's come on joe rogan's podcast which is the biggest platform in america today and he's spoken openly and nobody went after joe rogan for that you know joe rogan let him speak so so yeah in in that sense but now on this you know can you explain to people like it's it's a very vague term advanced interrogation technique it's it sounds so technical and scientific but like for example like this this part where you say you're literally saying but causing pain to pry out information torture physical torture i would not do it yet what was physical torture i would accept perhaps manipulating one's circadian rhythms as i had experienced many years before in so you're training, disorienting and eliminating one's sensory connections and reference points to the world, one's sense of personal grounding. The unstated operating assumption in our training had been that this contributed to making someone more willing to talk. Now, I'm not even talking about the physical torture bit. Even the thought of actually thinking that you're disturbing somebody's circadian rhythms was enough for me to be like, whoa, these things are done to human beings. And it is actually done. But again, if I was like, what what are these techniques? And maybe now we can talk about because honestly, the sum of the book is you sharing these horrific things and saying how you just could not live with them. So uh, unfortunately, it breaks my heart that even I have to do a podcast where I talk about these horrific things. But uh, I don't know how else to say it, but the truth has to come out. It, it does. I mean, that's the uh, <clears throat> that's the only hope we have is to to seek and then to make known the truth, uh, which can be you know there can be multiple truths. Uh, anyone who goes to India certainly should become aware the truth is multiple, um, but uh, but the, the nonetheless is truth. An easier <laughs> comment to make before I answer your larger question is. Um, Joe Rogan is a, a great commentator for um, Ultimate Fight Club and Mixed Martial Arts. Beyond that, unfortunately, the millions of people who listen to him are either demonstrating their profound superficiality and lack of knowledge about most anything, uh, or um, he is, and, and he's a good, you know, facile speaker. Nice guy as he might be, he's from my home state and so on, but he really has nothing to offer uh, people on issues of substance. And Edward Snowden is no. There is a debate because there's a, to this in the sense that there is a difference of opinion. But it is clear as the day is long 
that uh, he is a traitor and uh, at this point a Russian uh, asset and probably should hang. Um, but that, and so I'm no Edward Snowden. Um, what are the techniques? It's a sick story, uh, really. <clears throat> uh, so uh, people won't believe, uh, they don't believe that the CIA doesn't torture, hasn't been in the business of torture, doesn't have interrogators. That's not part of what the agency does, not just what my job was, but we didn't do it. And the reason I became involved is because we don't do it, which means, by which I mean, after the attack of 9-11, very quickly, the United States, which which really meant the CIA and, and special forces, uh, some found ourselves with uh, a number of detainees. This is specifically mostly in Afghanistan at first. And what is the mission of the CIA is to obtain intelligence. And so we thought, well, we can't just stick these people in prison because that doesn't do anything except for remove them from the battlefield. And they might have information that we need. So we have to get it. And uh, thus, they need to be interrogated. Now, the FBI does interrogations for law enforcement uh, as part of its core technical capability needs. And the military has interrogators, but the intelligence community does not, did not. But we found ourselves with these people and they thought, well, OK, we have to interrogate. We have to get the intelligence. And the people who are the ones who fix the problems, address issues, and can get things done in the CIA are the operations officers. And so they turn to the operations directorate and say, we have these uh, detainees and, and we need to interrogate them. And, and they needed people. And uh, for a series of sort of strange reasons, not particular unique abilities that I had. Well, that's not quite true, but not that I was anything particularly unique. They needed the Venn diagram of what they needed, the most experienced operations officer available, um, someone who had uh, good uh, language skills, um, someone who had some substantive knowledge on, uh, on, on terrorism, came down at that specific moment to one person, <laughs> um, just by coincidence. And uh, that's how I ended up being chosen, not that I was destined to this. It just happened to be, I fit the Venn diagram, literally. And nobody else really did at that moment. So that's how I became involved. How did we get these techniques? Uh, I have to go back a little in time, but it's really important and relevant. During the Korean War, 1950 to 1953 for the United States, uh, one of the scandals of the moment, which I, you know, I, that was before my, I was born, but it was one of the, the issues that I grew up learning about. It was a big issue in American public life was that American soldiers would be captured sometimes by the North Koreans. And then they would be um, put on a film. There would be a film of them uh, confessing that they had committed war crimes, that America was an imperialist, hideous nation, and that we were terrible you know, yellow dogs of capitalism and all this sort of thing. And the uh, authorities in the American society thought, gosh, how can these these American kids um, betray their country? What happened to the hockey player from Boston or the, the farmer kid from Kansas that he's now a traitor? We have to find out what happened. Now, they weren't traitors. They'd been tortured, these guys. And so the CIA and the U.S. military looked investigated what the North Koreans were doing to our soldiers. And they found out a bunch of techniques that the North Koreans were using on them. The North Koreans learned the techniques from the, the Soviets, from the Russians, who had developed them in the 1920s and 30s for show trials. And the techniques were designed to so ruin a person that he or she uh, would sign a confession uh, in the hour prior to being executed in a public show trial and execution. That was the objective of the techniques, was to, to destroy a person, not to obtain intelligence. They're torture methods. And that's what the North Koreans did. That's what the CIA learned. So then the military and the CIA developed a course during the 50s and 60s 
on how to uh, what might happen to you if you're taken prisoner at Glen Carl, if you're um, as a CIA officer. And here's how you might be tortured. What can you do about that? And there are some steps or frame psychological frameworks that you can embrace to maintain, to save some shred of your sanity. And that's a very useful thing to know. So that's how the agency learned of these techniques and then developed a course to prepare American officials, intelligence officers and, and soldiers, um, how perhaps to survive uh, torture. Then let's jump ahead 40 years. All of a sudden we find ourselves with these detainees and we have to interrogate them. So what do we do? And a, um, frankly, a complete charlatan, which is probably more in the weeds than you want to know, but the agency looked to an outside contractor who said, well, I know what to do. Um, and he had been involved in these training programs for the intelligence agency and the military on torture, on how to, how, what to do if you are tortured. And he said, that works. Let's do it. And the people making the decisions didn't know what they were doing. And we're under pressure because the World Trade Center had just come down and 3,000 Americans were rotting in Manhattan. Um, and they said, right, go to it. And uh, that is the program. Now, the, the techniques I can tell you if you, if you want to know, um, you alluded to changing circadian rhythms. For the, the listeners, as I'm sure most of all of you will know, we all have body rhythms. You know, normally we get tired at the same time of day. We need roughly the same amount of sleep. Uh, we are sensitive to light. We will wake up roughly around sunrise. Certainly I do. Um, we have to eat. We should eat in a regular pattern during the day. And all of these patterns, rhythms, you know, intersect and, and create sort of waves. You can put them, you can chart them as waves on, uh, you know, on a graph. If we alter those, I mean, and, and they are part of the essence of what it is to be a human being. You know, we we uh, we uh, we want to uh, procreate. We want to survive. Uh, we want to eat. We want to be uh, warm and out of the cold. Uh, we want to sleep, uh, not be afraid. Uh, these are this is we don't even think of these things because that's just what life is. But but it's the essence of life. So if you alter them. You alter your essence as a human being, and that's profoundly disorienting. And you can do that very easily. Uh, the, the most important or effective one is sleep deprivation. Uh, so what the uh, North Koreans did and what the agency did, uh, in, as I write about in the book, in this program, only not throughout our history, only during this program, a short period of time happily, is you uh, will say you are a detainee um, in a cell and I'll come in and I'll say, wake up, it's morning. And you, and you don't know because there's no windows and no light. And then I'll go away and I'll come back <clears throat> two hours later and I'll say, you know, the day is done. It's time to go to sleep. And you'll think, well, that doesn't seem right. It's not very long, but you don't know. And then maybe next time it will be 15 hours instead of two and you'll wake up long before you weren't tired anyway, because it only been two hours and you're disoriented that way. And I'll come in, say it's time to get up and you'll think, well, that was a really long time. And, and then maybe we'll let you sleep for four hours, but then only one, or we won't let you sleep for 46 hours or something. These are literally war crimes. They've been defined as war crimes to do this. And, and very quickly, not only do you become disoriented, uh, but you, you start losing the ability to think rationally. And uh, something since this happened to me, the only time in my life, um, I, I lost the ability to recognize uh, reality. I, I, I was seeing monsters and i had these conversations with myself i said well I, there are no such thing as monsters but there they are and and i have to believe my senses i'm not i don't make stuff up but of course my mind was 
And so you, you basically go crazy. I mean, there are various definitions of insanity, but if you can't recognize objective material reality uh, and the material reality that defines you as a physical entity is uh, altered so that it, you have no reference points, it, it makes you crazy. The theory is, and this is very sick and wrong, is that doing that to someone breaks down their will to resist and makes them more malleable so they can say, Kushal, what's the answer? And you will provide it. Um, that's not true. That's not true, um, but it's still believed by its proponents. And it's also uh, quite clearly legally, uh, according to the United Nations, the United States Convention Against Torture, on and on and on, uh, torture. That's what happens though. That was just one method of altering sleep rooms. Yeah, but what is interesting is that in your book, you talk about research too that categorically now states that these interrogation methods are not really effective. And and I mean, if I was to look at it, if you put someone under duress, what, what are the probable... If, if the job of an intelligence agency is to gather intelligence, the, the quality of the intelligence also matters, right? And, and if you are just torturing someone and they are just saying what you want to hear, basically, mm-hmm. and if, if then you anyways... And, and you actually do share examples of those scenarios where somebody basically ends up giving you bad intelligence and Absolutely. you share... Yeah, you share examples of that. Like, what did we get? We just basically pretty much ended up messing things up in the first place. But then, hey, uh, what what disturbed me even more was this thing in your book where you say, now you are in tremendous trouble. My countrymen are dead. They were innocent. But my colleagues and I are not innocent. Easy men. You're mine now. But they are nastier men than me in the CIA. And as far as we are I mean that that bit is so disturbing. What what is written there that they this is like I don't know how to say that like there are gradations of evil. <laughs> That's what is pretty much being said to the other side. That look, Jenny, you, know, you hear these things in movies, but when you kind of see it and re, uh, read it in real life, they're like, if you think I'm bad, you know what? You don't know what's coming next, so you better tell me. But I, I want to focus on the research too. Like, isn't this research shown to governments, shown to agencies? And again, I don't want to make it about America in general. I mean, you obviously focused on America, but, mm. but the point is like another example, right? Uh, live witness testimony now they show is actually not a very reliable way of mm-hmm. uh, getting justice. I, I, I was uh, listening to a series of uh, small podcasts about uh how these these tools that are used in uh, you know building a case uh, about evidence of uh, nailing someone it was it's actually in, uh, interestingly again i came across the innocence project and and through the innocence project i actually started looking into these different techniques that uh, and this had nothing to do with national security this was about internal crime in america and how people are charged but i i could relate to these things but can you st- mention a little bit of the research about how flawed these techniques are and what does the research say? Yeah, a lot of the empirical research that that really does establish um, with repeated facts um, has been done since the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. Um, But there was still knowledge prior to 9-11. you made a couple of important, touched on a couple of important points. It's true that uh, you and I looking at the same event uh, might see might see it differently and be completely sincere. And then our, our memories uh, reinforce themselves in ways that um, are sort of inductive and Bayesian, uh, but not necessarily accurate completely accurate. Uh, you know, our mind goes with the most probable, likely event based on past experience. But your experience is different than mine. So our realities, as we recall them, will be perceived differently and then recalled differently. And that's all done in good faith. 
So you're right. You know, what, what is reality? What is truth? Um, it differs even if the facts don't. And, 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 and in good faith. So that, uh, I'm ha half lost where I was going on this. That's, that's one of the two points I wanted to make. I've, I'm afraid I've lost the train of your question. Let me, if you can remind me, I'll get back to it. Um, uh, was, no, was so what in, I was, was saying that how, so how, what what does the research say is effective? Right, right, right. Basically, okay, yes, yeah, sir. Uh, well, the research is is it's categorical, really. That the what should be intuitively obvious is, as you pointed out right away in your comment just a second ago. Which is well, okay. If if you're causing someone pain, putting the person under duress, you know, how it, it seems sensible that that would not increase the reliability of uh, any statement the person uh, makes, and that isn't that's the case. Now that has been empirically since demonstrated. On top of that, I think that the data shows, and here I can I cannot cite chapter and verse, although colleagues of mine can that um, the duress and the pain also distorts you psychologically so that you actually remember things differently, inaccurately, less accurately. So it, it's wrong from every every single perspective. And I, I do, you talk about how um, this came out in various instances that I touch upon in my book. I don't recall actually if I put this one in the book, but perhaps I did, if not, nonetheless, it's, it's still true. And it, it's a bit of it, it, all of this descends into farce, except that it's tragic farce and tragedy your human life sort of simultaneously you know, occurring. Um, one of the detainees was waterboarded. I think it was 183 times or uh, dozens. Of I dozens. think you you do mention this. Well, you have mentioned something about waterboarding in the book. OK, so waterboarding is the it's a simulated drowning. And you, and fortunately, I had nothing to do with this, which is really hideous. Um, but you pour water down a person's throat and nose, and it makes them feel like they're drowning. You do this over and over. Um, after that, it, and it makes them vomit. They pass out. And all this. After that, had done happened dozens of times. The person said, uh, "You're right." Um, I have been hiding things. Let me tell you, because the question was, where is the next attack going to occur against the United States? And he said, I actually do know. And uh, there are a group of, of black Muslim Americans uh, training now for the next attack in Wyoming. Now, most of you will know Wyoming is a very rural state. There are a million people in an area of you know, 800 kilometers by 800 kilometers or something like that. Or, or no, 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 there are 500,000 people in an area that size. There's nobody there. Um, and so all of a sudden, here's the answer. And the information is given to the FBI. And the FBI, this is literally true. I'm not making this up. Sends teams, dispatches teams to go find the black American Muslim terrorists training in Wyoming. Well, Wyoming is about 99.9% .9 white. People look like me there. So a black American is not going to be, <laughs> you, you cannot hide, really. I don't know if, if there have ever been any, a group of black Americans who have gone to Wyoming. Um, and the notion that they are often, you know, amidst the sagebrush in the mountains and the plains uh, training, it, it's, it is ridiculous. And there was no such thing. There were no black American Muslims uh, hostile to the United States training in Wyoming. Uh, but the, the fellow thought, oh, my God, you know, I, I, I'll give them what they want. And he just came up with this whacked out uh, notion in part, I think, to to uh, um, uh, belittle the Americans for their idiocy and to, and to stop the torture. And that's what happens. It doesn't it. it produces totally useless disinformation. Glenn, just one and, last and, question. And important, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sure. And importantly, sometimes people will go, oh my God, they're gonna break my fingers or whatever it is, I will tell you the truth. And so the person will tell the truth, okay. And this is what Vice President Cheney always said, well, there you have the information, you have to act on it. 
But that's foolish also, because as you already alluded to, what's the big part of the intelligence business? It's not just to collect random bits of information. You have to correct. You have to collect accurate information. And to know that, you have to assess what you collect before you act upon it. You have to evaluate its reliability. So you get a bit of information from someone who you have tortured. How reliable is it likely to be uh, compared to information provided by someone who is willingly cooperating or has been tricked, perhaps, into revealing uh, the truth? You have to evaluate it. And uh, you, you can't just run off to the sagebrush in Wyoming searching for non-existent black Americans. Um, so it, it's a, a totally uh, counterproductive uh, method. Yeah, uh, I this this incident, I don't think so you mentioned in the book, you mentioned waterboarding as one of the sanctioned techniques. But Glenn, just one last question before we wrap up, because I'm going to end today's podcast. I usually don't do these things, but I'm going to end today's podcast by something that you shared. Basically, the CIA Inspector General Special Review Counterterrorism Detention and Interrogation Activities, which was declassified. And now before I read that horror show, uh I'm a Hindu, so I have to ask you this question. If you were born again, you're going to take up this job again? Hmm. Yeah, I can only think of um, one other. No, that's not true. No, I can think of two things that I, I might have preferred doing. Um, I, I actually I had the choice of the opportunity to either become a, a real diplomat, an American official in the State Department or a CIA officer. And I chose the CIA. For me, given my personality, my interests, um, I, I think I, I am ideally suited to be an American diplomat. And, and were I to live again, that is what I would have chosen. But I didn't. Uh, I came very close to doing what I wanted to do. The, case of a, the, the career of a case officer is much harder than being an, a diplomat. But being but harder, as I said before, is not necessarily better. Um, but it, it still had a lot of incredibly stimulating, fascinating, and meaningful um, issues and, and uh, responsibilities. Uh, so I, I might well do it again. Other than those two careers, the only other one would be to uh, to have been a historical historian or a writer. When your book, uh, I have to say, it made me think multiple times about how many things maybe my government does on many governments across the world do. I, uh, As I said, your book left me confused about many things. And that's why I use the Edward Snowden example to use. Basically, it was an analogy to so, show that, you know, many people will read this book who are Indians and be like, look at the Americans. But I, I maybe mm -hmm. wanted them to think purposely that what if your country is doing it? How would you respond then? So yeah, Glenn, thanks for writing this book. And uh, I know you said you're going to eventually write other books. So I'm, I'm looking forward to them. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming on the podcast and chatting with me. I enjoyed it. Anytime. So guys, I'm going to do the unthinkable. I'm going to end today's podcast with by reading this declassified cable or whatever it's called, which was in August 2009, uh, 2009 which details the Authorize, in quotes, standard and, in quotes, enhanced measures for interrogation. If, if you find this disgusting, I apologize in advance, but here they are. Standard measures without physical or substantial psychological pressure is written in the bracket. Shaving, stripping, diapering, generally for periods not greater than 72 hours. Hooding, isolation, white noise or loud music at a decibel level that will not damage hearing. Continuous light or darkness, uncomfortably cool environment, restricted diet, including reduced caloric intake brackets, sufficient to maintain general health, shackling in upright sitting or horizontal position, water dowsing, sleep deprivation up to 72 hours, enhanced measures with physical or psychological pressure beyond the above, has attention grasp, facial hold, insult, facial slap, abdominal slap, prolonged diapering, sleep deprivation, stress positions on knees, body slanted forward or backward, leaning with forward on wall, forehead on wall, walling, cramped confinement. And the last is what Glenn was giving an example of waterboarding. Now, 
I want you guys to read this book and I, I, I don't know what to say, but maybe in the comments, what you should tell me in the comments and this time I'll read them is that if you read the book, how did you feel about it as a human being? Forget about being an American, being an Indian, being a Canadian, whatever you are. I don't care which part of the world you live in, but I want you guys to tell me how you felt as a human being when you, because to me, the story that Glenn writes in this book is Glenn, the human being and what Glenn, the human being was feeling as he was doing this job. That's what I took away. Maybe that's not what Glenn's intention was, but that's what I took away from this book that Glenn, the human being was sharing these things. And I, like I said, it, it's, it's a, it's a book that shows, uh, I don't know the, the dark side of human beings, the dark side of American intelligence. I don't know what to say, but, uh, think about it Buy this book. Believe me, you should buy it. I'll leave the link in the description of the podcast. And uh, other than that, you guys know the drill. Support me, you know, on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Patreon, merch. I'll see you guys next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.